0: Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host, Peter Welch, Chief Operating Officer here at the Medical Society, and with me today is Rufus Sweeney, a third-year medical student here at the UW. Hey, Rufus. Hi, Peter. How's it going? It is well. It is well. It's a gloomy day outside, right. but we are we are comfy and ready to record and talk about an outstanding topic, a very important topic to uh, many of our members Many students, many residents, and that is financial literacy. So uh, let's jump right in. We're going to be recording a series of these podcasts about a bunch of different issues. Where did the content for this come from? Tell me the story.
1: All right. So, yeah, I'll just give you the background. Yeah. My personal stake in uh, financial wellness began well before medical school, actually. Um, I was in the, um, in the labor or the job market for a while. Um, I should say I was in the the workforce for a while. That's what I mean to say, um, which is not
0: typical for every medical student. Yeah. yeah. So
1: yeah, exactly. Um, so I took a gap year. I, I worked in a lab. I didn't make insane money, but I did, I made enough to where I knew I, I I had some left over at the end of the month, um, and I knew what I what I should be doing is investing that money, um, and so I was dangerous enough to like, you know, know that I should be doing something, but also perfect prey for people who wanted to come along (laughs) and offer me financial products. There's no shortage of people who want to show you how to use your (laughs) money. Exactly. Right. So um, I'm married and and my wife has a friend, uh, a childhood friend whose husband is in um, the insurance industry. And um, without naming the company or the person, obviously, um, and to keep a long story short, he offered me a product that was just horrible. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Something that I that I never should have been invested in. Um, it was a whole life insurance th- thing. Um, the but especially as like a twenty young twenty something mm-hmm. right with very few assets. And so um, after a year, I started to grow suspicious that I was invested in the wrong thing. And um, after a couple of years. You know, I had read through a couple of books that I really enjoyed, The White Coat Investor. Mm-hmm. Um, who, you know, all all doctors who are even remotely interested in personal finance swear by The White Coat Investor. Um, and I, I was into Dave Ramsey a little bit, who's <laughs> hokey but honestly right about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and I realized after doing some digging on on the internet that I was in a really crappy investment, mm-hmm. and um, it wasn't before I had sunk a lot of money into it. And so the the decision tree came that a lot of people run into where it's like, well, I've held, I've got this investment. Should I hold on to it? Is it ever going to be profitable? Is it ever, ever going to work for me? Or do I just bail out now and like treat that as a sunk cost? Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up canceling the policy. Um, it wasn't as junky as a lot of whole life insurance can be. It was mm-hmm. actually starting to turn a profit after two years. Um, but it was still not great, it was not a good investment for me. If I would have mm-hmm. thrown that into a Roth IRA in the S&P 500, who knows what it could have mm-hmm. turned into. Um, so I cashed it out, I got out, um, and and I realized, it. I, I, a couple things dawned on me at the same time. One, how many people are making this mistake, right, even before medical school? Because as part of uh, a pro, their program, often insurance agents um, or salesmen will, will target <laughs> um, Pre-med students early and earlier and earlier on, right? Which is just absolutely mm-hmm. uh, egregious. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, um, what can I do to prevent this from happening? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, um, serendipitously, uh, as I was kind of pondering those those things, um, Elizabeth R- Elizabeth Ringel of Wisconsin Medical Society sends out a blast email to all the students, and she's like, "You know, you can do Shapiro fellowships." Uh, and that's fine. You'll do research, um, and that'll be good for residency. Alternatively, you can do a, you can do a fellowship with the Wisconsin Medical Society with mm-hmm. your summer. Uh, and so with my summer between first and second year medical school, I decided to do a fellowship. As part of that fellowship, I was like, this is, um, I, I knew it was a bit, of, a bit of a stretch, a little bit of a reach, but I wanted to make a course for fourth-year students that they could take to learn the basics of personal finance, to not make the same mistakes I Mm-hmm. Because I figure if you, if you could catch students uh, before they get to residency, they're in a really interesting transition point, right, where they're going from an extreme negative net worth during mm-hmm. medical school to suddenly starting to make money. So how do they triage their money for the first time, right? How do they, wh- Where do they allocate their funds first? Um, and so that's basically the, the the whole idea behind that course, is to like help students to navigate those difficult decisions. Um, we had our first cohort of students, actually, uh, a week ago. And it was good. It was it was a really good first implementation. They were um, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of uh, I would say optimism after the course was over. Whereas before the course, they were like, "What the what? What
0: do I do?" So you think it's something that uh, there's a hunger for, there's a need for uniquely in the physician profession. Yes, I think so.
1: Yeah, because um, <laughs> look, we are really attractive. The whole, the old adage of like a you know. A rich doctor is um, not entirely true. I mean, the people listening mm-hmm. to the podcast will know. Yeah, um, it's not 100 percent true, but there is some truth to it, right? We do. We are high income professionals, yeah. and so they, there's um, a, a really huge opportunity for financial. Um, I'm putting this in quotes, even though. Yeah, so you can't see it. Financial planners to come <laughs> okay. along okay. and tell you how to spend your money and tell you how to, where to invest your
0: money. Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, you're would you say this is maybe broad strokes of maybe a stereotype, but most physicians don't have really any education in this and oftentimes are the high performers in, in high school and in college. They get tracked into medical school. When did they have an opportunity to come up for air and sort of, you know, I'll air quote now, the real world, let them see what's going to happen with their finances it maybe doesn't happen. And so you hit your residency, you hit sort of your first major paycheck. After residency, you hit a much bigger paycheck as a physician. When in the first three decades of your life did you have to make some of these financial decisions? And again, that's not every physician. Clearly, you know, you're, you're not uh, on that track yourself. But does that make physicians uniquely vulnerable to sort of this predatory advising?
1: Yes. Yeah, just to, to answer your short your 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 question briefly, yes, yeah. it does, and um, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to catch students while they're in medical school because mm. um, you you know we actually took a uh, like a straw poll and we had um, students raise their hand if they had had um, a steak dinner offered mm. to them by mm-hmm. uh, any you know fill in the blank insurance company and about three quarters of the students raised their hand sure. and this is during medical school so you can imagine how that just just gets ratcheted up during residency and it doesn't get any easier when you become an attending. And so, um, yeah, so, so like at some point you've got, you've got to give, give people a fighting chance. you got to give physicians a fighting chance. Yeah. You can't just keep hunting it down the road. And, um, there are, there are some programs, um, in the, in the country, some medical schools, I think there are four right now who are taking this seriously. Um, but four out of like 200 is, mm-hmm. is, Kind of mind blowing to me. Um, there are some residency programs and some fellowships that are, but they're few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the whole idea behind this is is that not only is it something that UW students can take advantage of, but eventually, through podcasting, right, through you know some outreach efforts, this can be scalable. Mm-hmm. Right, this can be something that, um, you know, medical students, pre-meds, residents, and full blown attendings can take advantage of at whatever phase they are.
0: I like to think about financial planning similar to like um, fitness, right? You know, it's like, it's a few relatively simple concepts and rules that are kind of hard to follow. Like they're hard to follow in principle. It's hard to not have that extra donut. It's not, it's hard to, you know, get out and work out when it's a gloomy 40 degree rainy day. Mm -hmm. You know, those things are, it's a simple concept, but it's hard to do in practice. It seems like financial literacy follows a similar path. Um, I just want to mention, too, that it's, you know, this is a great collaboration uh, from sort of the three different arms of the Wisconsin Medical Society. And the foundation brought you into the loop with, you know, with this uh, fellowship opportunity. Wismet Assure, our financial and, and insurance arm, is really interested in helping educate, you know, young physicians about, you know, how to, how to be successful, essentially. And then the medical society itself, looking at ways that we can continue to drive member value to all of our our 10,000 members across the state. So it's a very exciting collaboration for us, and I'd love to just sort of jump right in with our first topic. You know, today we're talking about, for this first podcast, um, the issue of budgeting. I try and avoid the word
1: uh, budgeting as much as I can, because, you know, maybe it's something that's personal to me, but I think a lot of people... View budgeting as as restriction as something that they that is like a very rigid, like mold cast and and you can't break out of that or else you run the risk of like, you know you you run the risk of, of disappointing yourself or shaming yourself or, you know as you're growing up if you if you decided to spend your money on things that weren't college savings then mm-hmm. maybe you'd get some disappointed looks from your parents and, and maybe like a stern talking to, um, and so that's what that's in my mind what budgeting is is um, associated with until I, I started having conversations with um with my partner and we we you know we would um we've been through this conversation probably a dozen times i mean it's just mm-hmm. it's like one of those things we can't quite settle on <laughs> what is budgeting what does it mean mm-hmm. um and the latest iteration that as, as we've conversed about it is well if you don't have a goal if you don't have something you're aiming for then Budgeting doesn't make any sense. Like your your day-to-day interaction with the things that you choose to spend money with money on is, um, is, like only makes sense in the context of a longer-term goal, from my view. Um, and so for me, goal setting is is how I have sort of that's the that's the word I've replaced budgeting with. Is like budgeting just is lost to its own reputation.
0: What are the big things you got to start with? What are some of the big things that a physician should be thinking about? A student should be thinking about. When they're setting up these budget goals?
1: It's a really good question. So, um, as far as I can tell, when it, it depends on what, what stage of your career you're in, but um, but often the priority comes down to to your personal, you know, you, what you personally prioritize. Um, so, for example, if you're extremely debt averse and you just can't stay, you wake like it keeps <laughs> you up at night thinking mm-hmm. about your debt, then likely that is your. Um, Chief concern, right? Not to talk too much about, mm-hmm. you know, chief complaint. Um, not to tie this <laughs> too much back to the medical profession, yeah, but like yeah, that's great. But the but if your chief complaint is is um, a heart attack, then you're not you're not going to want to you're not going to care about that that skin whatever that the mole moving mm-hmm. on you. Ch- same with, I mean, if you if you really hate debt, then investing going to be really uninteresting to you until that debt is gone, mm-hmm. right? And so. Um, the goal that you set largely depends on your own priorities. Um, that said, I think there there's this en- unending debate between like, um, well, once you have established your emergency fund in, in residency or when you become an attending, once you've got the right insurance for yourself, then you can start thinking like, well, do I invest or do I pay off debt? Mm-hmm. Like if, if debt isn't that, that hard on you, then there is a good case to be made that investing could yield a higher return over time than paying off that guaranteed however many percent, five to six percent that, it, that, that your, your debt might be accumulating. Um, conversely, um, does it really matter that much? Does the debate need to be had that, uh, that fiercely? I don't know. I think honestly putting, putting your money somewhere where it builds your, your net worth is more important than debating over the, the finer points and splitting mm-hmm. hairs, I think we we often lose the forest for the trees, right? We miss the forest for the tree, or yeah. So we so we like we we often end up like zooming in so um, microscopically that we get we, we lose sight of what's actually most important, which is building your net worth, mm-hmm. um, and so and there are lots of paths to do that exactly it's, like, exactly.
0: it's interesting to talk about you know the physician population, the the resident population, because unlike many other people out there you know there's not a guarantee for an income but the job demand is is great and the paycheck is great as you mentioned the same things that make uh, physicians good targets for for sort of um, predatory financial folks but it's we, we've passed that you know those concerns that affect 60 70 80 percent of Americans out there uh, don't necessarily uh, have that same worrying, factor for, for physicians. But that goal setting, you know, I, I want to, I want to ask, you know, the, yes, there's, let me say that again. When goal setting for a physician, you know, the personal preference, I I take that to heart, you know, that's something that you have to have to consider. But there's, there's got to be sort of standard good decisions to make. Like you mentioned, the, the, um, emergency fund and and how to invest in your 401k all things that I'm sure we're going to talk about over the next 10 podcasts but as I want to bring this this first introductory podcast to a close you know tell me a little bit about that connection between you know physician satisfaction job satisfaction life satisfaction and finances I think you know we talk a lot uh, about burnout here at the medical society and you know the number's been pretty stable around 54 55 percent of physicians uh, are burned out. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about these are the caregivers uh, whose whose uh, skills are so needed, there's already a shortage and you talk about people retiring early, hating <laughs> their job, um, loving helping people, but hating how it's done. So yeah. how do we connect in that financial well-being element to physician wellness? Um, that Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So um,
1: I think this is relatively um a new development in my understanding of, of budgeting actually so i'm just going to try it out here mm-hmm. for the first time in this podcast it's something that i didn't even include in the course because it's something that it's the it's the latest inter- iteration in the way i think yeah let's take it for a walk okay so Clayton christensen former uh, dean of harvard business school um he was uh he theorized a lot about innovation innovation theory how markets get disrupted, right? Disruptive innovation. Um, one, of the, one of the theories that he came out with was a jobs to be done theory of innovation, which is, I think, one of his most interesting discoveries, which was that um, rather than thinking about things in terms of their actual, um, like, so it, it actually goes best with an example. Um, if, I try and, if I try and define it, it's just gonna end up sounding more convoluted than just using an example. So when, for example, we're, drink, we're all drinking water out of a vessel, right? Um, we didn't buy this bottle because it's a, a bottle. We hired this bottle to be a liquid transporting device, right? So we're hi everything, every purchase that we make, we're hiring something to be done. So these jobs to be done idea, mm-hmm. right? It's, um, it's the way that I have most been able to, um, the, the best, best, uh, way I've been able to conceptualize budgeting for me, um, so there are five categories, five broad jobs to be done that you can break things down into. Um, again, this is, this is something that, um, that we've been thinking about a little while, but uh, I'm sure there are some exceptions to the rule, and there, mm-hmm. this is something that's going to be you know, developed over time. Um, the first one is, is um, social fulfillment. So an example of this could be like, going on a date with or without friends going on a date with your significant other going on a double date right something that leads to you feeling more socially fulfilled Um, and you don't always think of, of going out to eat as a job to be done but that is the 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 work that's being done by, Mm -hmm. you know, going out to eat. Yeah, you're hiring that
0: facility. You're hiring those, you know, the chefs and the servers and stuff like that. right, right, right. You're hiring the space, essentially, for that moment.
1: Exactly, and and by doing that, by occupying occupying that space in the restaurant and by, you know, utilizing their food preparation services, you're fulfilling a need that you have to be socially fulfilled. Um, Another category is time-saving and convenience. So if you buy lunch at work, that looks very different from going out to eat at a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. You're still feeding yourself, but they're fulfilling two so totally separate needs and so on. When you think of conventional budgeting, usually it's you lump things into the food category, but that isn't sufficient enough anymore, mm-hmm. right? So when you, when you think about the two different roles that those are playing, it's two totally separate things in your mind, even though we don't normally separate the two. Um, the other one would, might be identity curation. So I, uh, for Christmas this last year, I was gifted um, AirPods by my partner, Mm -hmm. and you know, there are like AirPods that are super cheaply made on Amazon that probably work nearly as effectively (laughs) and um, would serve a similar purpose as AirPods, but I wanted the Apple ones. (laughs) And why did I want that? And I had a puzzle over that. I was like, why did I want the Apple ones? So bad, you know, it it was important to me. and there may be a few advantages to getting Apple. It connects better with your like Mac Mac products, your Apple products in general. But um, but is that worth the price you pay? Probably not. I think identity. It was it was part of my identity identity curation to buy these this specific product, right? And to spend that ten x amount that I spent on this product, um, and not to rationalize. Irrational behavior like That's that. what this podcast is about. Exactly. You know, ir- <laughs> Rationalizing your irrational. No, I... <laughs> right, so, but I don't think it was totally unreasonable to, to spring for those specific things because there's there's value in, in curating your identity. And there's value to, I mean, I know there's this might be controversial, but there's value to that Tesla that you buy, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about saving electricity or sa- saving uh <laughs> saving the earth mm-hmm. by reducing your carbon footprint. It's sexy, but it's not all about that. Let's be honest. There's other electric vehicles right. out there, right? Right? So it's a, it's a status symbol. It's a status yeah, symbol. Absolutely. You're curating your identity mm-hmm. by doing it. And I say more power to you. Just don't make those sorts of purchases a routine thing, right, but if it's part of your identity creation, I think it's okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important one. And it can't, be, I don't think it can be overstated. I think identity creation is actually a really fundamental part of your purchasing process. Those are
0: the first three. So what's number four?
1: Number four is <clears throat> professional expectation. So this one sort of felt fit outside the bounds of everything else we thought. Um, so for example, when you buy that, that um, long sleeve uh, shirt that you need specifically to fulfill a criteria for your professional expectation, mm-hmm. I think that's um, a little bit outside the bounds of any other category. And it's, it's really important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes those things are supplied by your employer, but often they're not. So that, that stethoscope that listens just a little bit better, right, um, may not be financed by your employer, but it sure as hell is going to pay, help your patients quite mm-hmm. a bit, right, and um, as, as a professional expectation, I think it's reasonable to make those kinds of purchases. Um, the last one is standard of living uh, necessities. So um, here in the United States, um, thank God we have really a really high standard of living, um, especially this cohort that we have, like the physicians cohort. Um, they we we live really well and um there are certain things like like toilet paper and (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) paper towels and things like that that you just have to you buy in order to maintain your standard of living um one thing that's really important about this list is that sometimes they overlap Mm -hmm. like there's there are there's a lot of bleeding that these categories do into one another but often when you when you really stop and critically think about it you can parse these out and say well you know going out to eat It was part of my identity curation, yes. But I would say mostly it was due to social fulfillment. And so you can fill that category, right? It can go Mm -hmm. into that category. Um, I think that that's actually advantageous. The fact that you have to think about it Mm -hmm. and assign a category to it and, like, really be intentional about what you're doing is part of the magic of this whole framework is, like, now I'm no longer just making purchases and lumping them into a category. It's it's less simplistic, but it's it's mm-hmm. way more helpful and illuminating in, in how you're actually spending your money and why you're actually spending
0: your money. It's really interesting. It seems that it can help reveal um, some dangerous assumptions that we make about how we spend money. So I think that line between the professional expense and the identity expense. You know, you say like, oh, I'm I'm a big shot boss. I need to drive a different car. I'm a big shot boss. I need to get a, you know, uh, membership at the local club or something like that. You know, and realizing is this actually, or I need to dress differently or something like that. Is this actually a professional expense that's going to help me? Uh, that's that's valuable for my career, or is this just sort of that ego driving what I want to buy now because I'm identifying with that? And so, forcing yourself to lump one of these into one bucket or another. Can perhaps reveal some of those challenges to how we, um, to how we make our purchases. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rufus, I want to bring this first podcast to a close. I'm very excited about the series. I encourage our listeners to uh, to listen to them all. There's going to be ten more about all sorts of um, subjects. The next one for the next podcast is about how to live like a resident, even when you're uh, when you're mm-hmm. uh, uh, in your first practice job. So. I, uh, I look forward to continue to talk with you about these, and thanks for, uh, thanks for kicking it off with me here. You bet. Thanks, Peter. So that'll wrap up this edition of WisMed on Call. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, www.wismed.org and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcast. I'd also like to say that this podcast was uh, brought to us through the sponsorship of WisMed Assure, uh, where you can go for all of your professional liability, life, and disability needs, and they're really there to help make physicians succeed. So you can check them out at Wismed Assure, that's A-S-S-U-R-E dot org.